0: My house sits in the middle of a row of terraced houses in Sydney's inner west. It's not a big grand echoing old house. It's a worker's cottage, single story, two bedroom. It has a long straight corridor that leads through to the lounge and the kitchen and there's a bathroom at the back. It's cozy, but it's also haunted. And this is a story of that haunting. What has happened and is continuing to happen at my little terraced house. Over the next few episodes, I will fill you in on life behind the wooden front door of my spooky of house. house. spooky of house, spooky of house. Spooky didn't have to go out looking for a person to clear our house. They came to us in the form of our mutual friend, Sonia. We knew that Sonia had the gift of second sight as her predictions and insights were uncannily accurate, but a further chat revealed that she was also a medium in cleared houses. Sonia was studying and for part of the course she needed to spend a couple of days in Sydney. We were only too happy to have a catch-up and offer her a place to stay. So we met up with her after work one chilly night in Sydney. We had a few drinks and a bit to eat at the bar near Central Station, and then we called a taxi back home. We stomped up the steps to the front door. I didn't need to tell her what was going on. Partly I didn't want to. She'd had a long day, as had we. I just wanted the house to behave. But as soon as she walked in, she felt it. Whatever it was, she shivered at the cold spot in the hall, by the two steps up into the lounge and then she turned to us and asked to see the garden which was quite strange I was starting to feel a bit embarrassed I knew she was tired and I felt guilty it was almost as if my house was a demanding child shouting for attention but I granted her request as she was curious and she was a guest I'm sure that we'd both rather have had a cup of tea and a good chat So I unbolted the door and we walked out into the chill air once more, past the washing line and into the dark expanse of yard beyond. Sonia walked around taking it all in as we watched on. Eventually she turned to us and said, I can feel a vortex here. What on earth did she mean? I stared at her willing her to continue. She explained, it's a gateway to another plane. Things come through it and things can leave through it. This plane is not connected to a positive realm. Demons? I blurted out. Don't say that word, she said, with authority. I jolted, remembering I hated that word too. It's best not to mention it. It can give them power. I'll explain and give you some advice once we're inside. I swallowed, wondering if my net exploits with the pendant a few weeks prior had made things worse. I felt like we were in a battle situation with another world, with hordes of an unseen enemy close at hand. It made me think of the film Event Horizon, where Lawrence Fishburne and the team were in deep space, exploring a spaceship that had been out and back through a wormhole to another dimension, bringing back with it who knows what. A chill held me as I watched that film. And a chill crept across me now as I imagined other evil worlds where suffering was pleasure and no rules applied. Sonia turned towards the house and gestured, let's go back inside. She added, I just don't think you should use this yard until we have this sorted, certainly not this bit of the yard. So that night we were given a prescription of sorts. Every day we had to light a sage stick. And it had to be black mugwort, not white sage, Sonia said. Then we had to march around the house with it, as it smoked away, rotating it in a clockwise direction, and at the same time saying the St Michael's Prayer. And we had to do it for three weeks, not missing a day, and then she would come back to clear it. But I'm not religious, I countered, somewhat weakly, to Sonia. Sonia asserted herself, Well, either you want this to go, or you don't. And I hope this works. I want to help you, but you must follow my lead. I had no response to that. I felt like a big adventure was about to begin, and not a pleasant one at that. We all ran through the ritual together. Sonia paid particular attention to the spot in the hall. She progressed round the house, saying her lines clearly and crisply while we stumbled behind her, mumbling and mispronouncing key phrases. She turned to us and said, you must say it with energy behind it, say it like you mean it and don't be afraid because that makes them stronger. Sonia offered to guide and help us over the course of the coming weeks. She also said further messages may come to her and that she would pass them on to give us further instruction. At the end of the night before we all turned in, Sonia paused as she walked through the lounge. She turned to us and said, matter of factly, there's something dark in the corner of your lounge. She pointed at the back right wall, near to where the TV sat. I felt the tall dark form and I saw the Richter's curling grin beneath the cow and I knew I saw it too. Trying to reconcile what Sonia was telling me with what I believed, didn't believe, over the few days after Sonia's visit, I did a lot of online research looking at all aspects of ghost hunting, prayers, archangels, you name it. Through the course of my research I realized that prayers were to set a specific intention and call upon a specific energy frequency, bringing it into a space. That seemed to make more sense to me somehow. Anyway, Religious or not, we got to know St Michael's prayer very well. Over the next three weeks, we did as Sonia said and said that prayer three times a night, every night. No more stumbling over words. We became fluent. We had a routine. Get home, put the dinner on, and while it was cooking, we'd light three candles. Light the sage and whip round the house with it, speaking three incantations of the St Michael's prayer in near-perfect unison. Soon we could say the prayer without our notes, which helped, seeing as we were holding paper and burning sage at the same time. While I tried my hardest to firm up my intention and focus, it veered between what I had seen and what I was being asked to do. What I had experienced was clear and I wanted it gone, but what I was being asked to do was something that until now I fundamentally did not believe in. I didn't believe in religion, I didn't believe in other worlds, I didn't believe in prayer, and I didn't particularly believe in the presence of a God. But I knew whatever we were doing with St. Michael's prayer was having an effect. Because even with Sonia's compassionate and extensive advice, things kicked off worse in our place than ever before. When I was home alone, always when I was home alone, damn it, The footsteps would start, not just a gentle creaking. Oh no, this was full-blown, running, thundering footsteps of urgency and rage that would come up the hall, through the house, with such force that it caused me to jump and call out to my husband, what's up, thinking he'd come home. But it wasn't him. From my viewpoint in the kitchen, I could see Sally, our tricolored cat, sitting on the sofa in the lounge. Eyes tracking, head turning, following something across the room. She knew it was there there was no hiding from it, and then like a gust of wind it would blow itself out, the sound disappearing mid-stride. This happened three or four times over the course of those three weeks, usually in the early evening, always on those rare nights that I made it home before my husband, or he was out for the night. Some people might wonder why I wasn't scared, well I was a bit, but I was more angry, I was sick at living with this sulky teenager of a ghost and the staring and the snarling and the thundering steps. For one of these events, I was having a bath. I was sitting in the bath and the momentum carried the whatever it was to the bathroom door, the little wooden French doors opening inwards a good few inches before the steps stopped. I was more angry than scared then too. I was sick of the dark moods that I experienced around the house and I was tired of the cat following things with its eyes, externalising what I was trying to hide. I was sick of the creaks and the groans of the house that at the end of the day was mine. I was the one that was paying to be there and some cross-dimensional existential feud did not change the fact that there were bills to pay and the daily grind of work. I told my husband about these thundering footsteps and he was very sympathetic but I wasn't sure he was entirely convinced until something else happened right in front of his eyes. Something hurled a candlestick across the room in front of him. It was an evening, much like any other. Get home, get dinner on, exercise the Matt Damons, all the usual stuff. My husband was sitting on the sofa talking to a friend on the phone and I was clearing up the lovely dinner he had made when a sudden crash made me stop. "'I lunged at the kitchen door. "'What was that?' I asked, "'expecting my husband to be picking something up "'that he'd inadvertently knocked over. "'Except he wasn't. "'He sat on the sofa, his face grey and eyes agape. "'It just flew,' he said in a scared voice. "'What?' I asked. "'He gestured towards the far corner of the room "'where a candlestick which had been previously sitting "'quite happily on its stand on the piano,' now sat in three or four pieces on the floor on the other side of the room. I couldn't believe it. How did it get there? I asked. It just flew, my husband said again, still wide-eyed. He made an arcing motion with his hand before turning his attention back to his friend who, still on the other end of the phone, was more puzzled than we were. After he hung up, we tried to recreate the same arching trajectory with another candle, thinking that maybe it had slipped off the piano by accident, but no amount of piano shaking could achieve the same effect. The candle just slipped down the piano, coming to rest at its base. I couldn't wait until Sonya could come again. Well, that was a packed episode of My Spooky House. How to follow that? I thought I'd take forward the theme of poltergeist activity and I'd focus on possibly the most well-known case of poltergeist activity, the Enfield Poltergeist. The Enfield Poltergeist was a period of supernatural activity that occurred at 284 Green Street, a council house in Enfield, North London. The activity apparently spanned two years, and it involved two sisters, aged 11 and 13. The Society for Psychical Research got involved in monitoring the phenomena that went on, And Morris Gross, a member of the society, was on hand and made frequent visits to the house to monitor activity. The Enfield Poltergeist story is now a major motion picture film in the Conjuring series. And that film, as with coverage of the actual hauntings themselves, leaves the viewer wondering, was it real or was it a hoax? A number of people considered it was the girls themselves that created the phenomena. Whatever it was it fooled a number of witnesses including the police and generated much press coverage. The first instance in the Enfield Poltergeist story was when the mother Peggy Hodgson called police to her home in Enfield claiming she'd witnessed furniture moving around and that her children said they'd heard knocking sounds on the wall. Two police officers came and the poltergeist didn't disappoint. They witnessed a chair slide across the room in the kitchen. Later claims included disembodied voices, loud noises, thrown toys and children levitating. Pictures of the children levitating are to be found online. However, Most of the pictures show the children upright rather than horizontally levitating and appearing, in some respects, to be jumping. One of the girls, and this was the focus of the film, occasionally got possessed by the spirit of a person that used to live in the place, a man by the name of Bill, and she could talk in his voice when he took her over. Along with Morris Gross, Guy Lyon Playfair, also a member of the Society of Psychical Research, staked out the place and conducted several investigations. And he was convinced that the haunting was genuine. He wrote it up in a book called This House is Haunted, A True Story of a Poltergeist. The family and the girls didn't really help themselves. Some of the instances that people witnessed were actually made up by them because they felt pressure to perform for an audience. But there were a number of instances reported that were genuine. As reported in the film, the American demonologist Ed Warren and his wife Lorraine visited the house and conducted their own investigations. They were also convinced of the veracity of the claims. One of those doubting the veracity of the claims was psychical researcher Rennie Haynes, who raised some doubts about the alleged EVPs or electronic voice phenomena, the recorded sound of the poltergeist's voice as he possessed the girl, at the second international societal psychical research conference, which was held in Cambridge around the time of the hauntings. At the conference, the video cassettes were examined. Whether true or false, a 13-year-old girl speaking in the gruff tones of a 80-year-old man is not something that's easy to fake and why would you? The BBC on their Radio 4 programme staged a reunion of the key witnesses to the Enfield poltergeist. This involved the neighbour who Peggy and her family sought refuge with as things kicked off in the place as well as a police constable who witnessed the chair sliding across the room as well as a press photographer. The press photographer Graham Morris, then of the Daily Mirror, was dispatched to the Hodgson's house on an assignment that he now describes as life-changing from what he saw. Toys whizzing around the room. He got hit over his right eye by a Lego brick. He was convinced the objects weren't being thrown. He moved to the corner of the room to have a clear view of every person there and said that none of them were doing anything. The voice of the poltergeist that inhabited Janet Hodgson was identified by Gross as Bill Wilkins. In one particular interview Janet was asked in her possessed state who she was and that was the answer. Bill Wilkins died at the age of 72, had a haemorrhage and fell asleep, died in the chair in the corner downstairs. Apparently Peggy Hodgson stayed in the house until she died in 2003. Whatever the truth of this case, and there are many versions, what is clear is that it focused the nation's enthusiasm and energy for all things spooky for quite a period of time. Tune in the episode next week where it all comes to a head and the house gets cleared. I have an interview with Sonia herself who cleared the house. Sleep well, people.